This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Poker Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive from a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end we have a quiz. Yes, we do. Uh, so this week we are we are coming off of that high from the teachers tournament back into regular play, mm-hmm. and this is June eighth through June twelfth, twenty twenty. And on Monday, June eighth, we get the contestants Tanya Sean, a travel planner from Shreveport, Louisiana; Lindsay Majeski, a privacy consultant from Falls Church, Virginia. And Morgan Wilbanks, a physician from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, whose one-day cash winnings total $21,400. And we get the Jeopardy! round categories, a National Monumental Challenge, Colors, Name, Rank, No Serial Number, Three to Get Ready, For Good Measure, and Rock and or Roll Songs, where Rock... And roll are in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this round did see a number of triple stumpers, uh, particularly at the the higher value clues. Uh, they also left three on the board in the Jeopardy round uh, and one on the board in the double Jeopardy round. So a lot, a lot of missed money in this one. But I mean, mm-hmm. that happens. It happens sometimes. It's not your board. Yeah, the first daily double was in the National Monumental Challenge category at the $1,000 level at the 15th pick. Tanya found it and made it a true daily double with $2,000 to Morgan's $600 and Lindsay's $800. The clue was windblown gypsum gives this national monument in New Mexico its self-evident two-word name. There was a picture there. Oh, uh, Tanya did the all-in push giving Alex yet another opportunity to reference James Holtzauer. She knew it. It was White Sands. So she uh, she doubled her score and uh, increased her lead quite a bit. Mm-hmm. In the three to get ready category, um, the $600 level, on Columbus's first voyage, this one of a trio didn't make it back to Spain, having run aground off Hispaniola. Tanya guessed what is the Nina, and that was incorrect. Nobody else hazarded a guess. Uh, The correct response there is the Santa Maria. It would have been a coin flip if if either of them had had wanted to go for it. Right. It was a game of chicken. They were probably waiting for the other one to ring in and try it. Yep. Yeah. The the bad thing about a coin flip is if you miss it, you give the other person $600. While you lose $600 yourself. Yep. Yep. I learned that a hogshead is a unit of measurement, Mm. not just a brand name. Ah, that's there's a Simpsons quote about that. Hold on. Uh, oh, let me find how it. How do I not know it? Uh, it's in the for good measure while she's looking that up. Category at the thousand dollar level. One of these porcine measures is equal to sixty three gallons of liquid, and that's a hog's head. Now that that cannot come from an actual hog. There is no way that there is a pig with a head that fill, fits sixty three gallons. I refuse to believe it. 
Yeah, that that sounds unlikely. I feel like one of us should look that up. Uh, yeah, Simpsons. Not worth it. The metric system is the tool of the devil. My car gets 40 rods to the hogshead, and that's the way I like it. Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> so good yeah man that show Uh, is just so clever yeah (laughs) we should switch to the metric system uh Um, yeah yes si units si units okay (laughs) yep uh at the end of the jeopardy round tanya is in the lead with 3400 Lindsay has 2600 morgan has 1800 and we get the double jeopardy categories 19th century notables fonts of wisdom american plays Island people. This is leopardy. <laughs> and uh, so, all right, let me collect myself here. And uh, transcendental words. Um, each correct response will be a word that can be made from the letters in the word transcendental. They did pretty well with that one, yeah. with that category. They sure did. Yeah, uh, they only missed the sixteen hundred dollar mother of pearl. It's AKA. Or it's also known as Mother of Pearl. And that's Nacre? Nacra? Nacre? 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 I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know how you say it. N-A-C-R-E. I have never heard of that. So let's let's go out on a limb and say it's Nasra. Because <laughs> that, that sounds like the least likely way that it's pronounced. Yeah. Nacre is Nacre. what I'm finding okay. here on the, yeah, on the internet. Okay. Cool. Nacre or or Nacra? Okay. I think I, okay. I think yeah. I said both of those things. I think you did. I said a yes, lot of those, things. Yeah, I, I heard those in there. <laughs> and any right answer trumps all the wrong answers. Uh, we did find the first daily double of the round, so daily double number two, uh, at the $1,200 level in that category. Uh, Morgan finds it and wagered. 3,000 tall in. Again, good wagering. Um, mm-hmm. Lindsay was only at 4,200 and Tanya was at 3,800. The clue, to pour that Cabernet oh so gently into another container. And that is decant, which he gets correct. The fonts of wisdom category was kind of fun. That one was about fonts, like like typefaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a difference between a typeface and a font that uh, maybe I'm making somebody twitchy right now because I know that people get really pedantic about that. But you know what? If there is a difference, I don't care to know it. <laughs> I think you do. I think you're bluffing. I think no, you I'm going to take this. You... Uh-uh. I'm taking this stand. I'm dying on this hill. All right. Come Kyle at me. does not want to know about the difference between typefaces and fonts. You heard it here first. Definitely don't go into extreme detail on Twitter mm-hmm. explaining the difference. Please don't do that. The um, uh, $400 in that category was kind of a gimme about uh, Times New Blank debuting in 1932 for a London newspaper that was Times New Roman. Uh, we had a fun Jeopardy So... Well, no, is it Jeopardy So Woke to talk about gerrymandering? I don't know. Actually, both parties gerrymander. It's appalling. And somebody should do something about it uh but there was a there was a font created based on using gerrymandered districts to form the letters you had to come up with the word gerrymandering there uh looking at Mm -hmm. yeah looking at images of some of those letters 
at the 1600, there was, um, they showed uh, the clue in the font, which was weird to see. That was really weird. It was in the wrong font. It wasn't in the Jeopardy font. But the clue was, get that liberated feeling with this script, also a swimming stroke that was freestyle font. But then we got the uh, the last Daily Double as the $2,000 clue, 23rd pick of that category. Morgan found it. And he once again made it a true Daily Double uh, with 4,800, aiming to take the lead from Lindsay, who had 7,800. Tanya had 7,400 at that point. And his clue was the font for this historic book, printed in 1455, has come to be known as Textura. And he correctly responds, what is the Gutenberg Bible? Mm -hmm. Don't know that that was a $2,000 clue, but... Yeah. I wasn't sure whether to say from my couch, the Gutenberg Bible or just the Bible. The Bible. Because Gutenberg was the printer, but the book was the Bible. I think I would have said the Gutenberg Bible just to be safe. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they would have asked for more clarification. Yeah. All right. So, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Morgan is in a slim lead at 11,600 over Tanya's 11,000 and Lindsay's 9,000. They get the category 20th Century America, and the clue... Ten-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. sang with his church's choir at the celebrated premiere of this film. Lindsay wagers all but two dollars and does not hazard a guess, so she goes down to two bucks. Uh, Tanya has wagered it all, and she correctly uh, responds with what is gone with the wind. However, Morgan also wagered 11,000, and he also got gone with the wind. So he wins his second day with $22,600. Yeah. Gone with the Wind is the first thing that came to mind for me, but then I second-guessed myself because I wasn't quite sure why why a church choir would be singing at its premiere, and I started to wonder if maybe it was one of the kind of big kind of biblical epics, like the Ten Commandments or something. Or um, Ben-Hur. Or Ben-Hur, yes. Yeah, don't, ben don't act like you weren't trying to get there. I, <laughs> it is the truth. I was, <laughs> I was just trying to see when I could get Ben-Hur into this conversation. Also, I thought Gone with the Wind is a little, like, racially yikesy. Um, yeah. And if you put Gone with the Wind and it's wrong... Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you know that Martin Luther King Jr. would have been 10 years old in 1939. Right. That's yeah. kind of the only guess, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He and Anne Frank would have been the same age. You know, yeah. Born in the same year. Um, and Barbara Walters, too? Is that is that right? Oh, I hadn't heard that, but I, I believe it. That adds up. Yeah. Yeah. So Morgan is our winner going into Tuesday, where we get the contestants, Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, Shelley Castor, an editor from Sepulpa, Oklahoma, and Morgan Wilbanks, a physician from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, whose two-day cash winnings total $44,000. And in the Jeopardy round, we get the categories History of Hungary, Middle Name, Please, Marquee Moon, moon in quotation marks, can splaining, 
in the dictionary, uh, Alex says these will be words from the Random House Dictionary, and gone fishing. <clears throat> so in the moon category, the $800 level, we got a uh, reference to the worst James Bond film, uh, which... I mean, you could probably figure out just from me saying that with the clue category moon. The clue was in uh, 1979, Roger Moore bonding with Lois Childs in outer space. And that's Moonraker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I think I've mentioned on the podcast at one point in my life, my mom, the film buff, decided that my brother and I and her would watch all of the James Bond films in order. So we did. And Moonraker is just so bad. Okay. <laughs> It's so absurd. It's, it's right. ridiculous. I haven't watched a lot of Bond films. Someday. You can Someday. skip that one. Yeah. Okay. The cansplaining category uh, <laughs> was all clues to do with cans phrased in ways that are typical of, of stereotypical mansplaining. So we had uh, one that opened with, let me stop you there. Um, well, well hang on, hang on. Let, let me stop you there. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let me stop you there, proverbially, and exposing yourself to a possible problem. You're opening up a giant can of these. That's worms. So we get the Daily Double in the History of Hungary category, which I, I really enjoyed. I don't... I need to learn more about Hungarian history. Um, I know a little bit... I know enough to think I know things and then be uh, constantly reminded that I don't. Anyway... Mm. The Daily Double came, uh, it was pick number nine. It was at the $600 level. Morgan found it. He was in the lead at 2600 Shelly was at negative 200 and Zach at 400 So he, he was already in a comfortable lead. He only wagered 100 Probably didn't feel too comfortable in Hungary. It was a video clue. Jimmy presented it. And the clue is, For centuries, Hungary was on the front lines of Christian Europe's battles with Eastern invaders. The Mongols came through in the 1200s, and this empire occupied much of the country from 1541 to 1699. And he correctly identified that as the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. And Alex informed him that he made $100, to which he responds, fat stacks. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, it is a n- not a pretty looking scoreboard. Morgan mm. is in a huge lead at 7,300. Shelly is at negative 400. And Zach is at negative 200. Uh, but there's a lot of money on the board in Double Jeopardy, as the contestant coordinators like to tell us mm-hmm. in the commercial break. And the Double Jeopardy categories are Women Artists, The Plain Truth, Adverbially, Two Books in One. You have to name the two books by the same author that they have combined, which was so hard for me uh anyway historically black colleges and universities and talk show mm-hmm. i liked the two books in one category i didn't oh i'm get, sure you did <laughs> i didn't get all of them we started with oliver copperfield that's oliver twist and david copperfield we had a farewell the bell tolls which was a farewell to arms and for whom the bell tolls i know i've made my opinion of farewell to arms known many Mm -hmm. times but just let me make it known again um i guess i'm not really entitled to an opinion having not read it but i'll i'll share in your 
the great get ga- oh the great tycoon i couldn't figure out what author they were driving at there but that's yeah. the great gatsby and the last tycoon mm-hmm. breathing tourist at the 1600 dollars level i Oof. almost had it i almost had it it was breathing lessons and the accidental tourist yeah i knew it was the something tourist i knew it was, there was an adjective that was supposed to go in there and uh, the age of frome that was the age of innocence and ethan frome shelly got that one yeah yeah no i i knew like i've heard all of these titles but there was i was not able to even begin parsing those those upper three clues i, yeah. I just like my brain just shut down mm-hmm. they sort of came pretty fast right like they're short clues and the benefit of a long clue is that you get the time that Alex is reading to think about it. Right. Uh, we get the second Daily Double as the 19th pick in Historically Black Colleges and Universities. It's at the $1,200 level. Zach finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with 4600 Morgan has 10100 at that point. Shelley has 2000 um, So Zach is looking to almost catch up uh, with Morgan. He gets the clue... Fisk University in Nashville has a master's to PhD bridge program in conjunction with this local private university. And he correctly responds, Vanderbilt University. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that historically black colleges and universities category was interesting and fairly accessible. Yeah. And it it was also nice to see that they got all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. That category went especially well for Zach. He got the Daily Double and then also the 1600 and the $2,000 clue. That was a huge swing for him. He, he went on a tear there in those middle clues uh, mm-hmm. and got himself up uh, into the lead there, going, in, going into the later part. He also found the third Daily Double. It was at pick number 28, which was actually the last one of the round. Uh, they left two on the board. He wagered 3000 he was at 12,400 over Morgan's 8,900 and Shelley's 2,800. So <clears throat> risking enough to not risk his lead, but possibly extend it. It's in the plain truth category at the $1,600 level. And he gets the clue. The Columbian Abyssal Plain underlies the south central part of this sea. Uh, he does not offer a guess. And it is the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Which... Uh, Given how long ago these these shows were taped and current events in our country, we get an HBCU category and then also a clue referencing Columbus. Mm. Man, it's cosmic. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Zach is leading with 9,400. Morgan has 8,900, so... Um, Pretty close. Uh, Shelley is at 2,800, not out of contention. The category is pre-Civil War presidents. And the clue is, Encyclopedia Britannica says of him, after an extended tour of Europe, he retired to Concord, and he died in obscurity. My husband sitting next to me fell into the trap of thinking of Concord, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Gotta think of, you've got to think of Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, Shelley had wagered 200 and guesses who is John Quincy Adams, likely thinking that this is a reference to Massachusetts. That's incorrect. So she drops down a bit. Morgan has the correct response. Who is Pierce uh, with 1208? Very associated with New Hampshire. So that's what you were supposed to pick up on, I think. 
Zach has wagered 8,401 and correctly responds, who, well, <laughs> who Franklin Pierce? Uh, <laughs> Franklin Pierce? Uh, the important thing is to get the correct response down, and it's fine if you are getting it at the last second to just uh, scribble it down and try and go back and make it look good if, yeah, could, uh, if you have time. Right, because really he's just a comma away from it being a perfectly acceptable grammatical response. <laughs> like, who? Ooh, Franklin, Franklin Pierce? Pierce? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Zach is our winner. Yes, he is. If you are trying to remember your pre-Civil War presidents, uh, starting from Van Buren, your mnemonic is very hard to pinpoint the forgettable presidents before Lincoln. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very hard to pinpoint the forgettable presidents before Lincoln. That's... Wow, I had never heard that. I just like I just brute forced it to just <laughs> memorize the names. Wow. I I use it all the time in trivia settings. All that is going to make time. it so much easier because when I wasn't going through my flashcards every day, it's, it becomes harder and harder to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because they're very hard to pinpoint. That's right. <laughs> I do remember, of course, that Polk came f- first. I don't remember why. I think it was a. I think it was a, a, a campaign slogan. Ten years ago, we poked you. Now we'll pierce you, or something like that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, that could be entirely made up, but that sticks in my mind. Is like I at least remember which one was first and which one was second. But now oh, that's going to be good. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. So on Wednesday, we have Joanna Pratt a library programming associate from Ravenna, Ohio, Steve DeWitt, a middle school teacher from Burtonsville, Maryland, and Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,801. And we get the categories Civil War Nicknames, Name the Season, Home Improvement on TV, Emma Nation, Food of the Gods, and Taking a Self-D, with self-d in quotation marks. That $200 clue at Food of the Gods took me back to our deep dive with Anarchy. Uh, mm-hmm. The Mayan god Ektua was in charge of this bean product, not so sweet in those times. Um, and Zach got that one as cacao or chocolate. Yes. I enjoyed that whole category. Yeah, it was a good category. The day before I was, for various nerd reasons, doing research on, like, mythical fruits, and hmm. I fell into a rabbit hole of, like, the appearance of apples in so many different uh, mythologies. And so I had just learned the story of Idun and Loki in Norse mythology with the apples at the $400 hmm. clue. So. Uh, and then at the $600 clue, Uncle Alex makes us really uncomfortable again. The clue is the Egyptian fertility god Min dined on lettuce, believed to be this, any food that stimulates desire. Uh, and Zach gets that it's an aphrodisiac, and Alex says we're all going to start eating lettuce from now on. First off, how dare you insinuate that I'm not eating my vegetables? Mm-hmm. Second, I do not need you involved in that aspect of my life, Alex. <laughs> Please. Yep. And, uh... I don't want to think about that aspect of Alex's life either. Nope. Let's just move it on. That alone. <laughs> um, we get the Daily Double as the sixth pick in the Civil War nicknames category. Steve finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with a thousand. Um, 
Zach and Joanna both have 600. The clue is, on his way to Savannah, you might have heard Union troops calling him Uncle Billy. And he knows that that is William Tecumseh Sherman. Yet another clue that I feel like should not be at the bottom of the category. Yeah. Who in the Civil War went to Savannah and was called William? Yeah, and his yeah. name like, is William. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The name of the season was, uh, they. I think they ended up getting them all, but it was deceptively tricky. Also, I forgot that it was supposed to be the season initially and kept trying to uh, shout out the, the month or the or the date. Mm. Um, we had to name that Earth Day is in the spring. The daylight savings time ends in autumn. A lot of people think it ends in spring. Daylight saving time adjusts the time in the summer, in fact. Mm-hmm. Winter is the normal and summer is the is the um is the adjusted messed up time. time right the wrong uh, time the time that we don't need yeah what i don't need is to change the clocks back and forth twice a year every year we should get rid of that yeah that entire week let me tell you that entire week at school is just ruined they like mm-hmm. There is no one who is in a good headspace for for that whole week after the change. Yeah. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Zach has 5,400. Steve has 4,800. Joanna has 200. And the double Jeopardy categories are Catholic nations, literary title beverages, military idioms, three names in classic rock, earth, wind, and fire, and blood, sweat, and cheers. That last one was um, about exercise. Which, who who cheers when you exercise? I mean, yeah. I'm sure some people do. I know everybody in the workout videos do at the end when they're like, oh yeah, good workout everybody, all right, all right, yeah. we'll see you next time. But usually at that point, I'm like trying not to throw up and just incredibly thankful that it's over. Yeah. I've been to some classes where you get where you give a round of applause to the instructor at the end. I've been at some classes that have a like mandatory like bring it in, you know, like shout shout the yeah shout the name of the of the gym on three one two three like whatever. Um, But yeah, no, I I don't I don't generally voluntarily cheer. I'm willing to give a round of applause to an instructor. Yeah, no, pretty much not. Yeah. Felt like those were all pretty easy. They were, yeah. Anyway, how'd you do on the literary title beverages? Oh, I did fine. I got all of them. How did you do? (laughs) I did okay. I got three of them. Yeah. So, feel fine. Particularly because I haven't read any of them, so I don't feel too bad about it. Mm -hmm. Like Water for Chocolate is... um... That's a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like you were trying to set me up for a for a book recommendations with Emily, and I I haven't read Lake Water for Chocolate in oh gosh, I think it was sixteen or seventeen years ago that I read it. But it's good. It's important and it's enjoyable. And it's if you haven't read a lot of magical realism, then it's really different. Um, magical realism the first time you encounter it, which I think. Like Water for Chocolate maybe was the first time I encountered encountered magical realism. Mm. It's surprising. Um, So, yeah, I would recommend it. I also also correctly responded to a Like Water for Chocolate clue in our game. Oh, that's right. That's right, you did. And I knew Mm -hmm. it. And I was angry that I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Not really angry, but 
the 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 frustrated the momentary frustration you get when you're like ah oh, I could have got that one yeah yeah sorry not sorry it yeah no, it's the game it's the game yep bless me Ultima was my first magical realism hmm. and I don't know I it didn't it didn't throw me off the way we read it in school and a lot of my classmates just like either couldn't wrap their head around it or just or were like really resistant to it. And I thought it was a good book. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And and it was it but yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It can be very it can seem very different. Yeah. I don't know that work. Oh. Anyway. Uh Rudolfo Anaya, I think, is the author. So hey. Okay. Book recommendation. Nice. There you go. Bless me, Ultima. So we get the second daily double in the Catholic Nations category. It's at the two thousand dollar level. Zach finds this one. He is in a comfortable lead at ninety eight hundred over Steve's fifty two hundred and Joanna's fourteen hundred. He wagers three thousand and he gets the clue. This birthplace of a late twentieth century Pope dates its beginning as a Catholic nation to nine sixty six. And uh I took a guess on this one based on late twentieth century Pope, um since kind of there was basically one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that was Poland. Zach also got it. Mm-hmm. Daily Double 3 comes a few clues later as the 15th pick at the $1,600 level of military idioms. Zach finds that one as well and wagers 2000 of his 14400 Uh Steve has 6400 Joanne is at 1000 And the clue is, meaning a choice to use atomic weapons, it was applied by Trent Lott to a drastic change in Senate rules. And he correctly responds, what is a nuclear option? This is one of those clues where you have to look carefully for what words haven't been used, I Mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. Nuclear option came right to mind. And then I thought, no, that was in the clue. And then I looked again and saw choice and atomic weapons. And I was like, okay, you know, they're they're trying very carefully to not say nuclear option. Yeah. And kudos to Zach for not immediately throwing up after that question. Yeah. Not going to get super political with it, but that particular moment in history nauseates me. Anyway, something not to be nauseated about, though, was the last clue of the round. I'm just going to give a little music recommendation here. Three names in classic rock. The $1,200 clue. The late great Neil Peart joined Getty Lee and Alex Lifson in this band in 1974. And that is Rush. If you've never spent time listening to Rush, give it a shot. Anyway, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Zach is in a strong lead at 21,600, but it's not a lockout. Steve is at 11,200, and Joanna's at 8,200. They get the category Notable British Names, and the clue is published in 1881. The formation of vegetable mold through the actions of worms was his last and one of his best-selling books, and if I do say so myself, perhaps the most exciting title of his books. (laughs) Joanna wagered everything and got it correct with who is Charles Darwin. Uh, Steve wagered 10,401 and guessed who is Alexander Fleming. Not a bad guess given the the mention of mold, but that is incorrect. And Zach also got it correct with uh, who is Darwin and a wager of 5199, which I guess was fine. It was enough to stay above uh, Joanna's double up if he got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And he would need to get it right to beat Steve's big wager anyway. So yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, it's a way to maximize winning, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going into Thursday, we get the contestants Jennifer Cosman, a history professor from Lewisburg, Pennsylvania; Iman Shervington, 
a filmmaker from Los Angeles, California, and Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, whose two-day cash winnings total $44,600. And the Jeopardy! categories are American Literature, TV Catchphrases by Show, A River Runs Under It, Actions, Speak Louder, and Van Words, uh, words that will have T-H-A-N coming up in each correct response. And most, I feel like most games this week, we we uh, left a few on the board. In this case, the top three clues of the speak louder category. Yeah, I don't know why that might have been. It seems it seems like the the shows kind of go through phases where like there are a number of episodes that go that run long, and then for a while we don't have any. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just what I notice. The than words category, we we have a uh, one of the great disservices i guess that popular culture lends to what we think we know uh at the eight hundred dollar level in greek mythology this eight letter figure is the personification of death now i I think they include an eight letter figure specifically to make sure that you didn't do what jennifer did which was ring in and guess what is thanos because the correct response is thanatos Mm -hmm. oops we had um at the $400 $400 level in that same category. Beowulf features several of these feudal warriors who serve their liege. Uh, that was a triple stumper. It's Thanes. Mm-hmm. And uh, way back when I did um, a deep dive about Old English and Old English poetry, I think that word might have come up. I'm pretty sure it did. It's hard think not it to if you're talking about Beowulf. Yeah. I think I omitted the like full recap of Beowulf because we were... Um, because we were talking about the tournament of champions that week, mm. but but yeah, I'm pretty sure pretty sure that came up there. Yeah, um, in the TV catchphrases by show at the $800 level, we have we continue the strong tradition of of powerful Jeopardy contestants not knowing Mork and Mindy. We've uh, all made a plan to not know Mork and Mindy. Yeah, so all y'all just to people on shade. social media can just stop going after us for not knowing about this show it's a plan <laughs> ended before most of our lifetimes mm-hmm. yes i am not at all bitter about being accused of like not knowing anything because i couldn't remember the actress's name from work and mindy yeah Ugh. don't worry yeah. you'll get to see that again when the tournament of champions re-airs this summer and people will once again have some fresh opinions on twitter yeah well it'll be great it'll be fine yeah. we get the daily double as the 26th pick, it's in the Speak Louder category at the $800 level. Jennifer finds it, and she wagers $800. She's at $3,200. Zach is at $4,800. And Iman is behind at negative $800. She gets the clue. If you are increasing these units that measure the intensity of sound, you're getting louder. And Jennifer knows that that is decibels. Yep. Which, uh was also a correct response in one of my original runs. Oh, nice. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, it's only like two clues later, uh, Zach is at 4,800, Iman is still at negative 800, and Jennifer is at 5,000. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the French Revolution, Animals, the House of Representatives, Breakout Movie Roles, Patron Saints, and Pun Forgivable. Ah... That was a very difficult category for the contestants. Yes, it was. How did you do on it? 
Uh, I actually did really well. Because yeah. I guess I'm a dad and these are all dad jokes. <laughs> it was all dad jokes, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, no, I got them all. <laughs> yeah, nice. I missed that 2000, but I got the others. I think my favorite was the 1200. Uh, the clue was what you say to scare a lemon pie topping. <laughs> or an Australian Aboriginal weapon. And that is boomerang. <laughs> Which is so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They did provide the straightforward clues to um, to help you figure out the puns. Oh yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been possible without the the other one. <laughs> yeah, that uh, yeah, that triple stuffer. I feel like they would have been fine if it had just said an Australian Aboriginal weapon. Yeah, but the having the having the pun there, I feel like that mm-hmm. pulls your attention away from the part that can actually help you. Yeah, if you're not punny. Daily Double 2 comes up as the 12th pick in the Patron Saints category at the $1,200 level. Jennifer finds it and wagers $2,000 of her $7,400. Um, Zach is at $8,800 at that point. Amon has dropped down to negative $1,600. Oof. The clue is St. Erasmus, also known by this shorter name, is a patron saint of sailors. Jennifer struggled with it for a minute and ended up saying Eros right before the... Time ran out. Um, Alex says you had to think of Sesame Street. I'm not sure if you did. Yeah. <laughs> the, the correct res- I'm not sure that Sesame Street would help you. The correct response is St. Elmo. Um, if you know of St. Elmo's fire, like the electrical phenomenon where like a glow forms around like the masts of ships, mm-hmm. um, that's helpful. Yeah, that to me was the only clue. Yeah. Unless somewhere during the long run of Sesame Street, Elmo is referred to by his full name of Erasmus. (laughs) (laughs) We've been seeing more of Elmo's dad recently during quarantine. That's true. I've heard that. All these specials are just waiting for him to be like, Erasmus. (laughs) Now, Um, Erasmus, tell me again how you do that Venmo thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um. The parent move is to is to shout your child's full name when they're you know in real trouble. But oh yeah, Elmo's dad is too patient for that. I think yeah is in the House of Representatives category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Zach finds this one, and he is at twelve thousand over Amon's negative sixteen hundred and Jennifer's sixty two hundred. He wagers five thousand, trying to make make it a lock game. He gets the clue, this 15-letter appointed officer publishes the rules for the house and makes sure the reps abide by them. And he gets a correct, that is the parliamentarian. Mm-hmm. Less those parliamentarians. The real heroes. Yeah. Um, my, my experience with parliamentarians is mostly um, in uh, church assemblies. Mm-hmm. Over in the animals category, we had one that really should have been off to the right in the dad jokes category, I thought, uh, when these camel relatives give birth, it's been colloquially called unpacking. <laughs> uh, that's uh, alpacas. Yeah. <laughs> Learnedly, people appreciate llama and alpaca jokes. Yes, they do. Yeah. We do. Um, we do, I guess. We do. I'm, we do. I'm in, I've been in Learning League. I don't know. Yeah. 
So at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Zach has a lock game with 21,800. Iman has made it out of the red. Uh, she has 1,200, so she does get to participate in yeah. final jeopardy. Yay. Uh, we like that. And Jennifer has 7,800. The category is medical history, and the clue is one of the first recorded autopsies was performed on this man and revealed 23 puncture marks. I got this one right away, but I... I can see how if you start heading in the wrong direction, it would be hard to write yourself with yeah. uh, what you've got. Um, yeah, I don't know that I would have gotten it down in time. It took it took me at least twenty seconds to like to to get around the obvious misdirect mm-hmm. of like actual medical history. <laughs> that's that's a strange category name for for this clue. Yeah, that's I think that's the problem here. Iman wagered 1100 so everything but 100 and had who is, question mark. Couldn't come up with anything. Uh, Jennifer wagered everything she had uh, and also couldn't come up with anything. So Iman, after struggling so much to get um, back above zero, actually finishes in second place. Uh, yeah. Zach, yeah. <laughs> Zach had wagered 726, probably something significant, maybe a July 26th birthday or something. I don't know. Or anniversary. He has guessed who is Bram Stoker, which I appreciate. That's so funny. <laughs> Bram Stoker tragically lost to vampires. Yep. Um, or or vampire hunters? Are they stakeholders? I don't know. We don't. Um, that's that's fair. It doesn't say what kind of punctures. Yeah, I guess twenty three wouldn't really make sense for vampires unless one of them is missing a tooth, right? Um, uh, Are you suggesting that a vampire bites with? every one of its teeth no but i think like they've got the they've got like, oh it would have to be a it set, would have to be an sets of fangs number. and pairs gotcha gotcha yeah, okay, I, would, okay. I would expect to make I th- a number. i thought you were saying like it should be a full set of teeth <laughs> <laughs> oh. um the correct response here is uh julius caesar yes uh yeah you're supposed to know that he was um uh stabbed on the floor of the senate is that right yeah um, yeah. Sounds right. Uh, by by a whole bunch of people. 23, it would seem. Yeah. Although Alex tells us that the autopsy revealed that only one of the wounds could have been fatal. Although you get stabbed 23 I mean, times. Like, there, blood loss. Yeah, there's, right? there's got to be like a critical mass of stab wounds where it's like <laughs> none of them are particularly bad. You know, like death by a thousand cuts or whatever. Right, yeah. Or 23 cuts, I guess. Yeah. So, Zach is going on to Friday, and on Friday we get Matt Napolitano, a sports update anchor from Franklin Square, New York, Kelly Lake, an animation producer from Altadena, California, and Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, whose three-day cash winnings now total $65,674. We get the categories in the Jeopardy round, Classic Automobiles, The Speaker in Shakespeare, Table Talk, Celebrity X's, Words and Phrases, and Inside of Me. The thing I like about the Celebrity X's category is that there is no high culture too high or uh, popular culture too popular for Jeopardy. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you get your thousand from your Shakespeare category or from your Celebrity X's category. A thousand is a thousand, and uh, that's that. That's right. Although I am... I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stand here at the two hundred dollar level in that category. the The clue is fine. It's this actress and husband Chris Martin of Coldplay called their split a conscious uncoupling. That's fine. I am going to uh, 
remind all of our listeners to not listen to anything that Gwyneth Paltrow has to say. Mm-hmm. She is not a health professional. Not not at all. She is not a dietitian. She did yeah. Uh, yeah. She is Bleh. She is a charlatan, so don't yep. listen to her. Yep. Please disregard Gwyneth Paltrow. I liked her in Shakespeare in Love. Speaking of Shakespeare, how'd you do in the Shakespeare category? <laughs> I got four out of five. Uh, my head just wasn't quite in it for Hamlet, but oh. then I got it together. Yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, Double Double Toil and Trouble, Fire Burn, and Cauldron Bubble. That's from Macbeth. We've talked about that in a we deep dive. We have. Yeah. Catherine, I charge thee, tell these headstrong women what duty they do owe their lords and husbands. That is from The Taming of the Shrew. Petruchio is speaking. Um, and, uh, if you're not into Shakespeare, you could just watch 10 Things I Hate About You. I think it's one of the greatest movies of the 90s. I'm going to wow. take a stand on that. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I need to watch it now. Julia Stiles, the late Heath Ledger. I think Gabriella Union's in there. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah. 10 Things I Hate About You is a, um, teen rom-com from the 90s inspired by The Taming of the Shrew. And, uh, yeah. It's a good movie. Okay. We find the Daily Double as the $800 clue of the words and phrases category. It's the 25th pick. Zach uncovers it and wagers 1600 of his 3200 At that point, Kelly is way up at 8000 Matt has 1000 And uh, we get the clue. He who pays the piper holds the reins is an example of this incorrectly fusing two symbolic comparisons. He says, what is, what's a mistake? I don't know. Um, that is a mixed metaphor. He who pays the piper holds the reins. Those, those don't go together. Nope. So, um, so he drops down a bit, but he only wagered half of what he had. So, uh, not too bad. He had correctly gotten legalese just before that, which is funny because he's a lawyer. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Zach has uh, recovered a bit, up to 2,400. Kelly has 9,000. Matt has 1,400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. The Madness of the King. Colorful Cities. Troop Paris. A contestant walks into a bar, a bar in quotation marks, playing the villain and outside of me. Uh, and playing the villain at the $1,600 level, uh, Kelly really missed out on an opportunity to make herself, you know, meme-worthy. Uh, the clue is, as him in 1982, Ricardo Montalban says, I've done far worse than kill you, I've hurt you, and I wish to go on hurting you. And that is, of course, gone! Mm-hmm. But she just gave it like a normal response. Yeah. I guess. Which is fine. She got it right and she got the money. Mm-hmm. She doesn't owe us that. We get Daily Double number two in the Colorful Cities category. It's at the $2,000 level. Ah, I'm glad I got to talk about this one. Zach finds it. He wagers 4000 He has uh, managed to get himself up into the lead at 10400 over Kelly's 9000 and Matt's 3800 uh, So he's looking to make a big move. He gets the clue. This former mining town was Colorado's territorial capital. And he guesses what is Silver City, which I don't believe is a place, but that is Golden. Golden, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Which now 
claims to fame would be the Colorado School of Mines and the Coors Brewery. Hmm. Among other things, it's a nice town. I like Golden, but as far as anyone outside of this region knowing it, that would probably be it. Yeah. So he got it wrong, and he drops down again. Yep, and we get the third Daily Double in the Troop Paris category at the $1,600 level. It's the 17th pick, and Zach finds this one also wagers 2000 of his 8000 um, so he's recovered a little bit. Um, Kelly has 9,800. Matt has 3,800. And the clue is this word for a gorilla was used in the Boer War in World War II and as the title of a 1985 Schwarzenegger movie. And uh, we've talked about the Boer Wars. Yes, we did. Um, you did that deep dive. That I was, did. That was a good one. I um, also talked and, about this term. Yeah. Zach has not been listening to our podcast. Apparently. Uh, and he says, what is a partisan? Uh, the correct response there is commando. commando. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, Zach found all three daily doubles and got all three of them wrong. Oh, Zach. Yeah. yeah. He lost a total of $7,600 on daily doubles in this game and still... Goes into Final Jeopardy uh, at 10,000. Mm-hmm. He had a really solid overall Coriat score of 17,600, which is impressive mm-hmm. in gameplay. Yep. Um, that's that's really solid. Yep. Uh, Kelly is at 13,400. She was a lot more steady throughout the game. She just steadily climbed. Uh, and Matt is at 7,400. So it is anybody's game at this point. They get the category Authors and the Clue. On this woman's passing in 2019, Oprah Winfrey called her, quote, a magician with language who understood the power of words. Matt wagered $6,100, and he correctly responded, who is Toni Morrison? Mm -hmm. Zach wagered $9,995, everything but five, and he also got Toni Morrison, but Kelly guessed who is Maya Angelou instead mm-hmm. of Toni Morrison. So she drops down, which means that Zach is now a four-day champion. Mm-hmm. And he gets an undisclosed amount of time to study because this is the end of Jeopardy! Season 36. So we will see him back for Season 37. And I'm excited to see how he does. Yep. And I hope Jeopardy gets to come back soon. But we'll I, see. I do too. Uh, we do know the plan going forward, though, for the next uh, next amount of time. We like sure I, do. Like I mentioned, the Tournament of Champions is going to be re-airing. Uh, that's going to happen in July. Leading up to that, we are going to get some highlights of all of the contestants from that Tournament of Champions. So... Uh, we're each going to have a game re-aired from our original runs. Uh, presumably, they pick games for everyone that are kind of like flattering and show strong performance. My game, sadly, will not be the game against Emily. Boo. I know. I was really hoping it was. Because, like, that was a good game. Yeah. It, it was close. It was competitive. It was It was a good game. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, no, they're they're going with the the episode before that. So uh, the show with myself and uh, Christine and Reese, mm-hmm. my fourth game. So 
That is coming up on, I believe, my show will be on June 22nd. Yeah, we got that coming up. You're gonna see you're gonna see episodes with all of those contestants coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then and then capped off with the rerun of the tournament of champions, and then who knows it's what they're doing great. after that? It will be great. Mm-hmm. It will be great to relive yet again and get back. Ugh, I'm I'm gonna have to keep reliving the what ifs. Mm, yeah, and like if onlys. Um, so. We are finding ourselves yet again at the time when we normally would plug our Patreon. Uh, but, as we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and we'll probably continue for uh, a while, you can always check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash potentpotables, but uh, we are going to be directing some of our funds, and we encourage you to do the same toward uh, one of the many noble causes that are active and working in our country right now you can find a pretty big list of charities and uh, community groups at communityjusticeexchange.org they have national groups as well as local groups uh, that you can look into and find something that you think is worth uh, supporting you can also uh, look into other ways to help even if it's not with your Mm -hmm. money like donate time, donate advocacy, mm-hmm. uh, fi- find ways to, because if you're anything like me, uh, you you would be feeling this weight, and like as a white man, I understand like I understand how I have benefited from all of the things that are wrong with our mm-hmm. country, and I I don't want to be you know I don't want to draw attention to myself saying like oh it's hard for me to feel this way because like it's much harder for other people to feel the way they're feeling and deal with what they have to deal with but the way that you deal with that weight is by being active and doing something and making mm-hmm. making trying to help so there are lots of ways yeah. you can do that uh, like I said you can look at communityjusticeexchange.org uh, or plenty of other causes I absolutely agree with all of that yeah so find a way to connect uh, now in particular, um, but I think this will be the work of our lifetimes. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a quick fix. Yeah. Took 401 years to get here, and uh, hopefully we can find a better way in less than that. Yes. Hopefully, indeed. All right. So, Emily. Yes. What are your guesses? What am I talking uh, about this week? Right. It is a triple Let's stumper. see. It's a triple stumper. It is stumper. a triple stumper. Are you talking about uh, King Richard the Lionheart, the second and third? You've got to be kidding me. This is like three in a row. <laughs> Yay, I got it. Uh, and I realized you forgot to do this last time, but that's a that's a free 10 points for you in the quiz because you got it. Yay. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, kind of. Man, got it in one. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, okay, so it's from the Monday game, the three to get ready category. The thousand dollar clue was a triple stumper. Uh, and the clue is, in England, the only three kings of this name ascended in the 1100s, 1300s, and 1400s. Uh, and that was Richard. Um, so I'm not going to be talking about Richard the Lionheart specifically. I'm actually going to do something that I've mentioned a few times. Uh, and I think it might be helpful to our listeners to just get a like quick and dirty rundown of the royal houses of England. Nice. 
I should I, I, I should I should specify also and Great Britain because that matters pretty specifically. Uh, so I'm not going to get into detail really on any one king or queen because there are a lot, and for the sake of time, I don't want to just like wallow around in this forever. Uh, really, my my purpose of this is to just kind of like give you the order, try and give a little bit of context for the different houses. Because if you're anything like me, before I like looked into into it specifically, like I knew that there was a Tudor dynasty and a Stuart dynasty, I guess, and I knew that uh, the House of Windsor was the current thing. I knew that the War of the Roses was a thing, and I didn't really have like I didn't have them in order. I didn't have context. I didn't really know which was which. So uh, I'm gonna try and try and lay that out just from beginning to end it'll be quick <laughs> um, and uh, this is this is great this is a this is a tri- gap in my trivia knowledge perfect all right so to really talk about kings of england or royalty of england we have to go back to uh the ninth century before this obviously there were plenty of like people living in the british isles back to prehistoric times but into the ninth century we have uh different kingdoms within what is now considered England. We've got uh, Northumbria and Mercia. Northumbria is the northern part of England going up to what is now today Scotland. Uh, Mercia is kind of the center. Then you have East Anglia, which is on the east coast. uh, South of that is Essex. South of that is Kent. Uh, Sussex is on the southern coast, which if you know regions of England, these are like names that still apply. Uh, And then the Kingdom of Wessex, which uh, contains what is today London and Winchester. And so it's the Kingdom of Wessex that we need to start with, because uh, in the 9th century and into the 10th century, Danish invaders systematically conquered every other kingdom in uh, what what became England. Uh, And so the remaining quote-unquote free Anglo-Saxons were sort of unified under the Kingdom of Wessex with what is called the House of Wessex. That began with King Alfred the Great, who is also known as Alfred VI. So that was in 886 CE. He became officially quote-unquote King of England. And that was through the Treaty of Wedmore, which was a treaty between Alfred the Great and uh, the Viking king Guthrum the Old. Uh, and this was an agreement to allow, to, to basically not try to conquer Wessex too. <laughs> um, so Alfred the Great ruled from 886 uh, to 899, uh, and he was succeeded by his son Edward the Elder, who ruled Wessex for 24 years uh, until 924. There was some dispute as to his successor, and this gets into the fun names of Anglo-Saxons. There is some evidence that Aelfweard of Wessex was king in 924, uh, but he was not actually crowned, and he had no children, and his reign lasted like four weeks. So really, the the real successor to Edward the Elder was Æthelstan. He ruled from... 924 until 939. He was son of Edward the Elder, but he was unmarried, and so he was succeeded by uh, his brother Edmund I, who ruled from 939 to 946. He was killed in a brawl, aged about 25. So he was succeeded by his brother, (laughs) Adred, 
who ruled for nine years up until 955 and died at the age of 32. Then we get back to Edmund I. His son, Edwig, ruled from 955 to 959, died at the age of 19 with no children. So we get another son of Edmund I, who is called Edgar the Peaceful. And he finally had a reign that lasted a while, 15 years and 281 days. And he died at the ripe old age of 31. (laughs) He had a few sons, uh, the first of which was Edward the Martyr. Uh, He ruled for two years and 254 days, but he was murdered at the age of 16. Who was then followed up by one of the names that we all know and love, Ethelred the Unready. Mm. Now, Ethelred the Unready ruled from 978 until 1013, like th- about 35 years of, of rule, far longer than any of the kings before him. And he was married first to Elfig Fu of York, uh, with whom he had nine children, and then to Emma of Normandy, with whom he had three children. Now, Ethelred the Unready is called that because it was under his rule that all of England came under the rule of Denmark. So Sven Forkbeard, a Danish king, invaded in 1013, and Ethelred ran away and went into exile in Normandy. So Sven Forkbeard established the House of Denmark. That was in 1013. December 25th, 1013 was when he took control, and then he lost control on 3rd of February, 1014. So his rule lasted oh. 41 days. Okay. Um, now, Sven Forkbeard was the son of Harold Bluetooth, who I have men- mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Harold Bluetooth was the Danish king who brought Christianity to Denmark. So the House of Wessex was restored after the death of Sven Forkbeard, after his long and illustrious rule. Uh, Ethelred returned from exile and was again proclaimed king. He died in 1016 and was succeeded by his son, Edmund Ironside. Edmund ruled for all of 222 days, after which he signed a treaty with Canute, Canute the Great, which said that all of England except Wessex would be controlled by Canute. However, when Edmund died... One month after the treaty was signed, Canute just took over Wessex. So all of England was ruled by the House of Denmark from uh, that point. That's 18th of October, 1016. Uh, Canute ruled until 1035. He was succeeded by his son, Harold Harefoot, who ruled for four years. And he died at about age 24 and was succeeded by the another son of Canute, Hartha Canute who was uh, the son of Canute, and Emma of Normandy, who, if you remember, was also the wife of Ethelred the Unready before that. So uh, it's all getting mixed up. After Hartha Canute, there was a brief Saxon restoration. So we get the House of Wessex restored again with Edward the Confessor, who had a long, fairly stable rule of 23 years. Uh, And Edward the Confessor was also a son of Ethelred the Unready. However, he did not uh, have any children of his own. So at this point, the House of Wessex is extinct. We get a branch of that house, the House of Godwin, because Harold Godwinson 
takes over from Edward the Confessor uh, in January of 1066. Now, you might hear the year 1066 and think, I know that year. That's important. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Harold Godwinson, uh, who is the son of Godwin of Wessex, so he ruled for 282 days until he was killed at the Battle of Hastings against the invading Normans. Now, there was a disputed claim right after that when King Harold was killed. The Witten, or the Wittengamot, which was uh, a sort of council of Anglo-Saxon nobles or aristocrats, uh, they elected Edgar Atheling, who was the grandson of Edmund Ironside. They elected him king, but he was never actually to take control and rule, and he submitted to William the Conqueror uh, after like a month. So... In 1066, after the Battle of Hastings, the invading Normans under the command of William I, known as William the Conqueror, took control of England and established the House of Normandy. So that begins with William I, like I said. From December 1066, he was uh, crowned on Christmas Day 1066. His claim to the throne, he said that Edward the Confessor had supposedly named him heir He was a cousin of Edward the Confessor, but really it's just that he conquered England. His son, William II, ruled after his death in 1087, uh, up until 1100. And then we get Henry I from 1100 to 1135. Henry I uh, left no legitimate male heirs. Uh, His son, William Adeline, died in what was called the White Ship Disaster, which was a, a ship that sunk in the English Channel near the Normandy coast. It had a bunch of repercussions in England because obviously it took away the only male heir to Henry I. Because of that, that ended the direct Norman line of kings. Henry named his eldest daughter Matilda, Countess of Anjou, as his heir. uh, And Matilda, Countess of Anjou, was married to a man named Geoffrey Plantagenet, Count of Anjou which you might recognize the name Plantagenet. Mm -hmm. Before naming her, he had been in negotiations with his nephew, Stephen of Blois, B-L-O-I-S. And when Henry died, Stephen invaded England and took control of England away from Matilda. The period which followed is known as the Anarchy. So there was, it was basically civil war between those who supported Stephen and those who supported Matilda. Uh, There was fighting on both Britain and the continent for nearly two decades. Matilda was never actually crowned, so she's not like an official monarch of England, but her forces controlled England for a few months in 1141, so it is arguable that she was actually the first female monarch of England. King Stephen appointed his son, Count Eustace, as co-king, which apparently was a custom in France, but the Pope and the church would not agree to it, and Eustace was not actually crowned, and he ended up dying before Stephen anyway, so it never really mattered. Stephen came to an agreement with Matilda in November of 1153 by signing the Treaty of Wallingford, where Stephen recognized uh, Matilda's son, Henry, as the designated heir. So that is the beginning of the House of Anjou. Remember, uh, Geoffrey Plantagenet Mm -hmm. and Matilda are the Count and Countess of Anjou. So uh, at this point, there's a little bit of um, variance in the way that historians talk about it. This is the House of Anjou, and they're often referred to as the Angevin kings of England. 
however, they can be called the Plantagenets because they are descended from Geoffrey Plantagenet. The reason that there is a difference, the Angevins refer to the early line uh, when the kings of England also had significant holdings on the continent. And then mm-hmm. after the loss of those holdings, the term House of Plantagenet becomes more common. They're not really referred to as Angevins or House of Anjou after they lose their claim to Anjou. Uh, it's from this house that you also get the cadet branches, Lancaster, and York, which we will talk about later. So, Henry II is the first of the Angevin kings. He rules from 1154 to 1189. After that, we get his son, Richard I, also known as Richard the Lionheart, whose reign is less than 10 years, uh, nine hmm. years and nine years and some change. Henry II was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who we talked about before. And so Richard I is the son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. We know he famously fought in the Crusades. And while he was gone, Prince John controlled England and then he returned and ruled for a while. Uh, Richard the Lionheart was killed in France by a crossbow bolt at the age of 41. He was a war leader. That's what he loved doing. Uh, so he was succeeded by his brother. This is the only King John in the history of England. Uh, and he is also referred to as John Lackland because it was under his rule that the House of Anjou, or the English kings, lost pretty much all of their land on mm-hmm. the continent. A lot of the nobles did not like King John, it was under John's rule that the Magna Carta comes out because, uh, you know, they're trying to wrest away some rights from the from the monarchy. Uh, and we also get the Barons' War, First Barons' War, which was essentially a bunch of nobles rebelling against King John. Uh, they also reached out to Louis VIII of France for help. And Louis VIII, he landed in the north of Kent. And as the story goes, he marched pretty much unopposed to London, where the streets were lined with cheering crowds. Louis was proclaimed King Louis I of England, though not crowned, and pretty soon he controlled most of the country and the support of a lot of the barons. However, in at the signing of the Treaty of Lambeth in 1217, Louis was paid 10,000 marks and agreed he had never been the legitimate king of England and went back to France. <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> um, so technically, I mean, depends on how you want to go about it. He was never actually crowned. So if that's what it takes. <laughs> so you had a French king for a little while. Uh, after that, House of Plantagenet becomes its own. So like I said, under King John, uh, with the Barons Wars and a bunch of other uprisings and, and uh, French aggression, the English kings lose their hold on the mainland. So we get Henry III who is the son of King John. Uh, he rules from 1216 to 1272. He rules for 56 years. Really long reign. He is succeeded by Edward I, or Edward Longshanks. He rules for 34 years up until 1307. Edward II rules for 19 years from 1307 to 1327. Edward III rules from 1327 to 1377, a 50-year reign. And then Richard II, rules from 1377 to 1399. Uh, He dies fairly young at the age of 33. And so it is here that we get the split in the House Plantagenet between the Lancasters and the Yorks. Mm -hmm. Richard II died with no heirs. 
So that's kind of where this happens. The, the House of Lancaster, it descended from Edward III, his third surviving son, John of Gaunt. And Henry IV seized power from Richard II uh, and also displaced Edmund Mortimer, who was then age seven, who was also a descendant of Edward III's second son, Lionel of Antwerp. So these two houses descend from Edward III, either from Lionel of Antwerp or from John of Gaunt. So the Lancasters take control with Henry IV from 1399 to 1413, then Henry V from 1413 to 1422, and Henry VI, his first reign, is from 1422 to 1461. Now, this is where the War of the Roses really ramp up. House of York claimed the right to the throne through Lionel of Antwerp, and, and Edmund of Langley, who was the, the first Duke of York, so that's why they became the House of York. In 1461, Edward IV of York takes control, and he rules for almost 10 years up until 1470. Uh, After Edward IV, Henry VI is restored, but then he is captured and put in the Tower of London by the Yorks and allegedly murdered there. So then Edward IV takes over again up until 1483, which is when he dies, followed by Edward V, who rules for a mere 78 days and is allegedly uh, murdered. He disappeared in the middle of 1483 at the ripe old age of 12 years old. Hmm. Followed by Richard III of York from 1483 to 1485. Uh, And Richard III is the one who fought in the Battle of Bosworth Field and was killed by Henry Tudor. So, this is the end of the War of the Roses, and the end of the Lancaster and uh, York houses, although the Tudors have a connection to the Lancasters. Uh, So that's essentially who they are. Henry VII calls himself Henry Tudor, and this is the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. In 1485, he takes the throne, uh, and he rules until 1509. He is followed, of course, by Henry VIII who rules for 37 years, from 1509 to 1547. Uh, Henry VIII, don't want to talk a lot about, has a bunch of wives, has a few children by those bunches of wives. Only one son, though, Edward VI, who rules from 1547 to 1553, and dies at the age of 15. Edward VI had named Lady Jane Grey as his heir, and four days after his death, Jane was proclaimed queen, Uh, However, nine days after that, the Privy Council switched allegiance and proclaimed Edward's half-sister Mary to be queen, and so Jane was executed for treason at the age of 16. So this put a Catholic on the throne. Uh, Up to this point, Protestantism, at least from Henry VIII, had held. But Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, ruled from 1553 to 1558, along with her husband Philip of Spain. Uh, who, if you know about the history of Europe, Philip was a was a, a uh, very strong and warlike Catholic leader. So they ruled until 1558. In 1558, uh, with the death of Mary, Elizabeth I takes over. And she rules from 1558 to 1603, 44 years. And she has no children. She goes unmarried, has no heirs. Uh, and so after her death... Her first cousin twice removed, King James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, is named King of England and Scotland, and this is called the Union of the Crowns. 
James was also descended through the Tudor line from Margaret Tudor, so he had a legitimate claim through that. Uh, He ruled from 1603 until 1625. He was succeeded by his son, Charles I, who ruled from 1625 until 1649, when he was executed during the English Civil War. So there was a period where there were no kings. This is called the Interregnum. Uh, After the execution of Charles I, there was no single English head of state. It was ruled by the Rump Parliament and English Council of State, acting as an executive power, and this is known as the Commonwealth of England. However, Oliver Cromwell didn't like what the Commonwealth was doing. He thought he could do a better job, so he led his forces and took control from Parliament uh, and dissolved the Rump Parliament. And we entered a period known as the Protectorate, with Oliver Cromwell as the Lord Protector. So he was Lord Protector from 1653 until 1658. He named his son, Richard, to succeed him as Lord Protector. However, Richard lacked both the ability to rule and the confidence, and he was removed by the English Committee of Safety in 1659. And after this, in 1660, the English Council reached out to Charles II and asked him to reclaim the throne. A little bit about Richard Cromwell. He was also known as Tumbledown Dick. Hmm. And he did live to a ripe old age of 85 years old, even though he was deposed significantly earlier in life. So we get Charles II. Oh, I forgot to mention. After Elizabeth, with the Union of the Crowns and James I, we now have the House of Stuart. So the Tudor line is finished. Now we have the House of Stuart. So we had James I and Charles I. Charles I was executed. We had a few years uh, without a king, and then Charles II, son of Charles I, is invited back to reign. So he takes control. He rules from 1660 to 1685. His son, James II, then rules from 1685 to 1688, at which point he was overthrown. Uh, He was ousted by Parliament, and his daughter, Mary the second, and her husband, William the third, took control. That's also William of Orange, who was the king of the Netherlands. Mary ruled until 1694 when she died, uh, but William maintained control until his death in 1702. William and Mary did not have any children, so Queen Anne then took over. She was the daughter of James the second. And it was under her rule in 1707 that we get the Acts of Union, which officially unify the kingdoms of Scotland and England. And so now we no longer say that they are kings or queens of England. We now say they are kings and queens of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Uh, So Anne, this is still the Stuart line, rules until 1714. At which point uh, she has no surviving children. So now the English line kind of shifts from mostly Anglo or Dan- like Danish or French. Uh, we, get to, we get a lot more of the Germanic influence at this point. Uh, so she is succeeded by George I. He is the son of Sophia of Hanover. And so this is the beginning of the Hanover line. Uh, so George I rules from 1714 to 1727. George II rules from 1727 to 1760. And then we get our favorite king, here in the States, George III. He rules from 1760 until 1820. He had a nearly 60-year reign. And all of the Georges were married to noble women from 
Germany or German-speaking regions. George I was married to Sophia Dorothea of brunswick luneburg Chella. George II was married to Caroline of Brandenburg-Ansbach. And George III was married to Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, which Charlotte is where we get Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. That's George III up until 1820. He is succeeded by his son George IV, uh, who ruled from 1820 until 1830. Uh, Also married Maria Fitzherbert first, and then Caroline of brunswick Wolfenbüttel. They have one daughter, so they don't issue an heir, which means that William IV, who is also a son of George III, takes over. He rules from 1830 to 1837, and he only has two daughters, which means that when he dies in 1837, here we get Queen Victoria. Victoria was the daughter of the Duke of Kent and Strathairn, and Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld. So the Duke of Kent was the fourth son of King George III. So it had to go all the way down to George III's fourth son and his only child, Victoria, to be for her to become queen. It was a lot of Basically a lot of luck that led to Victoria becoming queen. But she ruled from 1837 until 1901, and she was, of course, married to Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. So she is the end of the Hanover line, because this is all based on the father, of course, as things were. And so her son, Edward VII, is the beginning of the Saxe-Coburg and Gotha house. Edward VII ruled from 1901 to 1910. Then his son, George V, took over and ruled from 1910 until 1936. So George V was the King of England during World War I, uh, and he's the one who dealt with all of that. He's also the one who changed the family name from the very German-sounding Saxe-Coburg and Gotha to Windsor. So now we are officially the House of Windsor. Uh, His son, Edward VIII, is king from... January of 1936 until December of 1936, when Edward VIII abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson, the American divorcee socialite, which caused so much scandal. So with his abdication, his brother George VI becomes king, and he rules from 1936 until 1952, so through the Second World War, and he is succeeded by his eldest daughter, Elizabeth II who has been ruling since 1952 and is currently 94 years old. And now we Mm. get to today. Oof, that's a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So, quick rundown. I know I named, like, everyone, but... Starts way back with the House of Wessex, trades off with the House of Denmark. Then we technically get the House of Godwin, who is defeated by the House of Normandy. Uh, Then we technically have the House of Blois for one king. Uh, So that doesn't matter a whole bunch, but that's followed by the Angevin kings, who become the Plantagenet kings and queens, uh, which breaks into the Lancaster and York houses for the War of the Roses. They are both kind of swept aside by the Tudors, who become the Stuarts, then the Hanovers, and then finally Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, or Windsor. So there we are. Goodness gracious. (laughs) So I don't expect you to necessarily remember all of that from one go-through, but now at least you have somewhere to go and listen to if you want to listen to it again, and and kind of like put things in order again. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna take me a little bit of time to to integrate that, but I think the re-listen when when uh when we release the podcast will will help uh, solidify it. 
Thank you for doing yeah. all that. Goodness gracious. It's interesting to me, but also a lot. Yeah. Okay, so we have a quiz. All right. And each one of these questions relates in some way to one of the names of the houses. Okay. So it could be any of those. And sometimes I'll be in the clue. All right. Or they'll be in the question. All right, so here we go. Question number one. Okay. Normandy is fine and fair, as the song goes. However, for most Americans, Normandy means D-Day. For five points each, give me the code names for the landing beaches in the Normandy invasion of June 6, 1944. Oh, goodness. Hmm. Did I say five points? I meant for two points each to total ten. Sorry, okay. for two points each, give me the code names for the landing beaches in the Normandy invasion of June 6, 1944. All right. I don't know if I know any of them. Uh, let me think about it for a minute. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I know it. I'm trying to figure out what the connection to the royal houses would it's, be. I'm tempted to just. The connection is that it's Normandy. Look. Yeah, it's. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. Right. All right. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I'm gonna take a zero on this one. What are they? They are Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. You don't know what you don't know. That's true. If you can, I don't know if you, I don't know where you would find it if you have like HBO Go or something. Uh, If you've never watched the miniseries Band of Brothers. Ooh, I haven't. Very good. Also read the Stephen Ambrose, I think it's Stephen Ambrose book that it's like derived from. Very good. It's about easy company parachuting in on D-Day. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right. right. Uh, Okay. Question two. Anjou pears sure are tasty. But another type of pear is the most commonly grown outside of Asia. It was cultivated in Europe and first planted in Roxbury, Massachusetts in 1799. Originally called the Williams Good Christian Pear, what is it called now? (laughs) It it was. Uh, What is it called now thanks to the man who later took over the orchard and named the pears after himself, whether he was aware it already had a name or not? Uh, I Uh, I don't think he went on to be a TV president. Mm, I think this is a Bosque pear. It is Bartlett. Oh, it's Bartlett. Oh, no. Okay. All right. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, TV president. Uh, Oh, I've I've seen every episode of West Wing. Come on, Emily. Oh, no. That's okay. I got my bonus points from uh, from guessing. That's true. That's true. You you have 10 points now. All right. Yeah. Uh, Number three, Patricia Reichard. A sandal-clad, freckled tomboy who made her debut on August 22nd, 1966, is better known by what sensational nickname? Ooh. All right, give me the clue. Perhaps I should say made her comic strip debut on August 22nd, 1966. By what sensational nickname? Oh, Peppermint Patty. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's Peppermint Patty. Uh, yeah. I I was today years old when I learned that her real name is Patricia Reichardt. Yeah, and, as was I. Yeah, and the connection there is York Peppermint Patty. So mm-hmm. Hope, ah, don't, gotcha. know, don't know if that, that clearly did not help. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question four. In the first of numerous memoirs, this author recounts how an important tutor, Bertha Flowers, helped her find her voice again after it had gone away for nearly five years. Who is that author and poet who flung a song up to heaven and followed it on May 28th, 2014? Oh, um, I think this is Maya Angelou. It is Maya Angelou. That's You asked which, about a poet 
I, I did. I did. Yes. Also, Maya Angelou was an incorrect response on a Final Jeopardy this week, which uh, I was not planning on. <laughs> but it's all connected. Oh. All right, cool. So you were up to 30 points going into question five. Jimmy Stewart starred in five movies directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The first was a, quote, limited setting film based on a play, which was further based on the real-life murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks by University of Chicago students Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Name the film, but I've already shown you the revolver and lead pipe. Oh. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if it does. It sounds like it sounds like you're talking about, like, game Clue, although if that's a movie, I don't think I know it. I'm going to say Clue. Uh, it's it's also not Clue, no. Um, okay. The film is called Rope. I mean, oh, okay. I mean, I know Clue is a, a movie. That, that, like, right, it's not like, a Hitchcock like, movie. Like, that's called classic, but like, <laughs> obviously that's not what you're... Okay, right. uh, it's, called, it's called Rope? Yeah. Yeah, okay, I did not know that one. Okay, yeah, it's very good. Uh, it's limited oh. limited setting. It is kind of that, you're right, you were thinking of Rear Window, Um yeah, it, it all takes place in one apartment, and it's actually uh, edited to make it look like it was one take. Mm, um, neat. But yes, it's based on the Leopold and Loeb murder. Okay, so you're at 30 points. Going into the final, right. and the category is Windsor. I don't know quite what to make of that. I'm at 30 points. I will wager 20. I'll, I'll wager 21 okay. of them. okay. Getting up over 50? Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a quick question. Short. If I'm dealing with four in hand, Pratt, or half Windsor, what am I doing? Oh, um, you're, you're tying a necktie. Ding, ding, ding. You're right. Exactly. Uh, it's surprising the number of people who don't know how to tie a tie. Which I realize mm-hmm. if you've never done it before, there's no reason for you to know. But mm-hmm. yeah. nice. I do, in fact, know how to tie a tie. It's a, it is a useful skill that you don't often use if you're not like you know in formal business mm-hmm. but yeah um at one point i knew how to tie a bow tie also oof that's tricky yeah. to do it right i'm not actually i've never been good at it <laughs> who has really yeah all right well hey you got 51 points yay Way to 51. Go. nice job all right i i clearly have some military history to catch up on <laughs> it's there's a lot of it since apparently that's all we can do as humans. So. Oh. Anyway, thank you, Emily. Thank you for potting with me. Oh, thank you, Kyle. Fun as always. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. It is such fun to share Jeopardy with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it would be really great if you could leave us a review or a rating as well. We mentioned that we are trying to uh, encourage you not to subscribe to our Patreon, but instead to um, support a worthy cause in this difficult time. But you can tell your friends about the podcast. That's right. You can find us, and they can find us too, on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our website is potentpod.com, and you can reach out to us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. So we'll be back next week, and I guess we'll kind of have to figure out what that's going to look like, Mm -hmm. but we will be back next week, fear not. Yeah. So until then, may your minds be quick, and your buzzers be quicker.